0: You're listening ad-free with Wondery Plus. In stories about legendary scammers and thieves, there's a kind of neat narrative that we tend to grab onto. You've got the criminal genius tricking their marks and outwitting their pursuers. And you have the gifted detective matching wits with them, getting inside their head, understanding and eventually anticipating their moves. It's satisfying. I love books and movies like that. It's also... Nothing like the story that exists within the 20,000 pages of the Tiger Dossier. That story, it's more human for one. Full of mistakes and overlooked opportunities, false assumptions, missteps and dead ends, endless bureaucracy. That's partly just because international investigations like this one are ridiculously thorny and laborious, even when you think you know who the culprit is. Consider a single request to subpoena the records of one phone number in Israel. First, the request went to the Israeli government, requiring translation into Hebrew or English. And the French police couldn't just demand the records. They had to explain the crime, lay out some facts, and justify the ask. The whole thing could take weeks or months, generating piles of paperwork. Then, even if the phone carrier turned up a name or address, even if the criminals were dumb enough for those to be real. The French police couldn't just show up asking questions. The Israelis would have to do that. So the paperwork started again. Now, multiply that experience across dozens of numbers and emails and addresses, and a list of countries that included the UK, the UAE, Poland, Belgium, Greece, China, the US, and many more. So if you're the French investigators, past with figuring out who is impersonating your defense minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, you could be sure in your gut that it was Schickley. It was Schickley calling up the heads of other countries, Skyping with the richest people in France, securing millions of dollars in wire transfers to supposedly rescue French hostages. But proving it was him, gathering admissible evidence to actually convict him, if you could even ever get him to France, that's gonna take some time. And while you're following each little trail, he's already on to something else. Still, some trails are more promising than others. When His Highness the Aga Khan got scammed in March of 2016, the investigators finally had a reliable one to follow. Money. Flowing out of his bank accounts and into ones held by the scammers. It's all there in the Tiger dossier. You could see the French investigators chasing that money. From the banks of wealthy victims to the coffers of obscure shell companies. Running down every name Hoping that one of them will connect back to the man they've been after for more than a decade. From Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music, I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is Persona.
1: Silex, vite feu. Ton de pyrex, te dire
0: Episode 5 The Mask
2: Okay, it's rolling.
0: Okay. I'm ready whenever. And I'm sure Chris has already gone through it with you, but obviously we've discussed not using the name of the company and your name. So don't be concerned. No, I'm not concerned because I am confident. Thomas, let's call him Thomas, was the owner and CEO of a successful small company based in the southwest of France. He is a confident man, a sun-kissed and preppy-looking French Riviera businessman in his 60s. The company he ran has been around for nearly 30 years. Thomas said they'd struggled during the 2008 financial crisis. But by 2016, they were thriving again.
3: The company was in very good health again, profits $10 million. Mm -hmm. And it's at
0: this time the problem we are speaking about today. The problem, as you can guess by now, started with a strange call to his assistant. This was just days before the Aga Khan began sending millions of dollars at the supposed request of Le Drian.
3: I think the first stage was that uh, Chicli make a general survey about the people who are working in the company, and especially my personal assistant, mm-hmm. because I will learn afterwards that he knows where she lives, mm. what are the name of her
0: children, and so on and so on. They called the assistants home, pretending to be from her child's school, saying she'd left a book behind. That's how they learned the child's name. They even got inside Thomas' email, he believes, or at least his calendar. Because they know that the day of the attack, I will not be at the office. He was on a business trip to northern France when the scammers pounced, contacting Thomas' assistant and saying they were calling from an accounting firm. The story hit the familiar beats the company was making an important acquisition, requiring the utmost secrecy. The assistant needed to make some bank transfers so the sale could go through. When she had doubts, they mentioned her child by name. So she knew that they were there in the room with Thomas, who was too busy to speak.
3: Perhaps the most important thing, that he has a way to speak, to enter the mind of the person he's speaking to, that she's totally uh,
0: paralyzed. As I listened to Thomas, my first thought was, it's classic Shickley. Getting the kid's name, cornering the assistant with the urgency of the situation, all the moves. But it was hard not to also think, how could anyone fall for this at this point? The president's scam had been going on for a decade by then. Everyone knew about it, especially in France. But one thing Shickley had always understood was that it doesn't necessarily matter what they know. If you could tell the story well enough, pressure the target in just the right ways. You could short-circuit someone's better judgment. This gamer sent two transfer orders for around 300,000 euros apiece. The destination was a bank account in China.
3: And they sent by mail transfer orders which are signed with my signature.
0: Matching. Matches yours. Yeah. Hmm.
3: It is not like mine. It is mine. Hmm. I don't know where they find it, but... It's mine.
0: The assistant called the company's bank and made the transfers. A few days later, a bank representative came by the office for a routine meeting. Thomas signed into the bank's website. And that's when he saw it. All of his company's liquid cash had gone out the door.
3: And I see two transfers of more or less 300,000 euros. In less than one second, I understand. Really? Uh, I turn my head to the banker and I tell her, Hela, she understands also. <laughs> and she cries. Immediately, she cries. The banker? Yeah, the banker, not me. <laughs> the banker cries. It's <laughs> a drama, the absolute drama.
0: Both Thomas and the banker had the same two realizations. Number one, the company had been scammed. Number two, it would be bankrupt by the end of the month. The absolute drama indeed. Thomas went to the police, who had first doubted both him and his assistant. The cops suspected they'd embezzled the money, and were now blaming it on the famous Shickley scam.
3: How did it happen? What do you know? know.
0: They placed the two of them in separate interrogation rooms, checked their stories against each other. Finally...
3: After more than one hour,
0: they say, OK, you're not guilty. (laughs) While Thomas went in search of an emergency loan to save the company, the police arranged for his assistant to record several calls from the scammers, as they did with the Aga Khan. Within weeks, they made an important connection. The account that Thomas's assistant had transferred money to in China. It was the exact same account where the Aga Khan had just sent 2.9 million euros. If there were any doubts Shickley was behind the rash of faux Le scams, this would have put it to rest. They now had two scams. Thomas' assistant fell for the fake president— The Aga Khan fell for the Faux-le-Drian. Both were being conducted by the same people, using the same bank accounts at the same time. The scammers were like a band, trying out edgy new material, but still playing the hits. A few days after both Thomas and the Aga Khan sent their money to the scammers, a 36-year-old Frenchman walked into a bank in Warsaw, Poland his name was Sylvain Rouget. He was there to collect nearly 5 million euros that had been transferred into an account at the bank. The money had been frozen, and now Rouget was there to try and unfreeze it. That 5 million euros had come from the Aga Khan, but Rouget didn't know that. Even though the account was in his name, he had no idea where the money came from, or why it had been blocked, or how badly his life was about to take a turn for the worse.
2: From the very beginning, he didn't know what he was getting into.
0: That's our producer, Chris Knapp, translating between me and Maxime Bailey, one of the many Parisian lawyers we got to know on a trip to France earlier this year. Rouget, the Frenchman in the Warsaw Bank, was Bailey's client. And according to the Tiger dossier, a central figure in the Foladrian drama, the first player the French identified in the money chain. But Bailey told me that Rouget was just a stooge a money mule,
2: and nothing more. He didn't know what the overarching goal of the thing was. He only knew that his task was to set up these two businesses in Poland, using a fake identity.
0: And essentially, in that sense, he was a straw man. The story of Ruger's involvement starts like this. A few months earlier, a guy Rouget knows in Paris asks him if he wants to make some easy money. The guy's name is Sebastian Zawadzki, and as the authorities will learn, he's the one who matters here—someone higher up the chain who might lead them to the scammers, to Shickley. Do you know how they became friends? Non, Sylvain Rouget and
2: Zawadzki n'étaient pas amis; c'était des connaissances. So yeah, they weren't friends. They were acquaintances. And Roger would never have said of Zawadzki, yeah, that's my close friend. It's just someone
0: that he knew. Zawadzki is a Polish national, and he's just done 21 months on scam charges. Turns out, prison hasn't set him straight, because now, Zawadzki lays out the plan for Roger You're going to fly to Poland with a bunch of fake documents, open a bank account there, then come home and collect a percentage of whatever money passes through it. There was no
2: So it wasn't established in advance exactly how much it would be, and obviously they didn't have a contract. (laughs) But the agreement was something like 4% of the total amount that passed through the businesses.
0: Four percent of millions, Zawadzki tells him. An easy few hundred grand. Only a fool would pass it up. So Roger arrives at the bank carrying a false Lithuanian passport. It's got his picture, but a fake name. He uses it to open a business account for a fake company. Sebastian Zawadzki's name is nowhere in sight.
2: There's a lot that you can uh, criticize Zawadzki for, but you can't criticize him for being dumb. Um, He didn't want his name to be on any of this stuff.
0: Then, in March 2016, jackpot. The phony account Rouget opened up receives 4.9 million euros from the Aga Khan. According to the Tiger dossier, Zawatsky's plan was to transfer the money on to China, to the same Chinese companies that had received other scam payouts. It's money laundering 101. Divide up a big score and quickly transfer it around the world, before the authorities have time to stop it. But in this case, he wasn't fast enough. The transfer caught the eye of someone at the bank in Poland, who put a hold on the money. And that decision by an employee at a random bank in Warsaw, it ends up being the first big break in the investigation. Now there's a money trail. When Zawadzki sees the transfer has been blocked, he tells Rouget, You gotta go to the bank again and find out what's up. Unblock that money. Even though Rouget doesn't speak a word of Polish. So he never denied knowing that
2: what he was doing was not strictly legal. But he also didn't ask many questions about what the larger purpose was.
0: Rouget does as he's told. He goes to the bank presents his credentials at the window. He has Zawadzki on the phone the whole time, ready to speak to a representative. So
2: Rouget was basically just carrying a telephone. That was his mission. He was just going basically as a go-between, you know, so that Zawadzki
0: didn't have to go himself. Rouget was the firewall for Zawadzki, there to take all the risk in case anything went wrong. Minutes later, the Polish police are at the entrance of the bank. Does he feel stupid for going, or does he feel betrayed? Both. Rouget was thrown in Polish detention with very little idea of what the case was about. For one thing, he couldn't read any of the documents about his own charges.
2: So then he found himself in this really Kafkaesque situation where he's in a country where he doesn't understand the language, he doesn't have access to the dossier. It's this moment that they put Rouget in a room with the Polish version of the dossier and said, here, have at it. And he just had like a little Polish-French dictionary that a priest bought him.
0: It's like kind of a nightmare. According to Bailey, Rouget asked the Polish authorities to extradite him to France. Or he could at least understand what was going on. And he kept asking for the next three years. Meanwhile, back in Paris, Zawadsky was cooked. In Rouget's phone records, the French police found 329 calls between Rouget and Zawadsky over the previous three months. The authorities quickly closed in on him. According to the Tiger dossier, they began picking his life apart. They tracked and then tapped his phone. They subpoenaed flight manifests, rental car records, accessed his bank accounts, and downloaded his Facebook profile. They investigated his other employees and their bank accounts, looking for anything that would lead them to the people still perpetrating the Le Drian scam. The victims, meanwhile, were piling up. The Swiss head of a foundation, taken for nearly a million dollars. A French winemaker, for three million. And then, a couple months after the French police started watching Zawadzki, he traveled to Poland, the Polish police promptly arrested him. The investigators were gaining a foothold in the organization, but slowly.
1: We're in Bordeaux. (laughs)
0: On a gray day in mid-February, we set out from Paris on the TGV, the legendary French high-speed train. We were headed to the province of Bordeaux, on the west coast of France, to the ancient village of Saint-Emilion. As reporting goes, let's just say it wasn't exactly hardship duty. This is one not of the bad. beautiful stone villages I've ever seen. The village was perched atop a hill, and every turn had postcard views out over the vineyards. At the front door of the winery Chateau Gadet, we were met by the man we'd come to see, Guy Petrus Lignac. You could take off your masks, he told us. Here, it's freedom. Before we sat down to talk, he suggested we take a tour of the winery. You know, for context. Lignac was dressed in mustard yellow slacks an elegant blazer, and a cozy gray scarf. With his white hair and prodigious eyebrows, he seemed almost cultivated to match his surroundings, which is what you'd expect from a man who has one of the most famous names in all of French winemaking.
4: Now, first, my surname is Guy Petrus, because it's my family who creates the famous wine, Petrus. It's a sister of Petrus
0: Pomerol, a Bordeaux that was first created in the mid-1800s. It was famously served at the wedding of Queen Elizabeth, and was a favorite of the Kennedys, a marker for the rich and powerful of the 20th century. Lignac's side of the family sold their interest in Petrus years ago. But Lignac, after a career in the pharmaceutical industry, took over the ownership of Chateau Gadet. But who was Mr.
4: Gadet? During the French Revolution, Mr. Gadet was on the wrong side in politics. Mm. He lost his head on a guillotine in June 1794. He was a lawyer, but not good lawyer for him. He showed us
0: the winery's 100-year-old wine press and walked us through the barrel room. And here we use only French
4: oak. We don't use American oak. Sorry for you, but we don't use American oak because not
0: the same testing. If you didn't catch that, the they don't use American taste, oak. So it would throw the off work. the taste. Now we are going underground to see bottles. Then we descended a steep set of rickety stairs into a catacomb-like wow. wine cave. Here, in front.
4: Back first. If you want, I take your. Uh, I think it's better.
0: Yeah. Because I know the leader. Okay. One you No, one dear. Okay.
1: Okay, but oh, the cable.
0: Okay. We wound oh, through the stacks of dust covered bottles, prize winning wines that cost thousands of dollars each. He even made us turn off the recorder once so he could tell us some winemaking secrets he didn't want potential thieves to know. Finally, we emerged into a tasting room and to the story we'd come to hear. You know the story that we're that we're asking about. And I'm, I'm interested in what was the first contact that you received and what was the situation when you received this first contact?
4: Yes, it's very strange. But uh, <clears throat> one day, I take lunch with my wife and uh, the phone ring.
0: They were lunching at the winery, not far from where we were sitting. His wife went to the other room to pick it up.
4: And my wife answered... And she came back and she said to me, it's the secretary of the minister of uh, Le Drian who wants to speak with you.
0: The call was from Le Drian's assistant. The minister would call back in five minutes. This didn't seem to phase Lignac. Over the years, he'd rubbed elbows with government ministers and celebrities, the upper crust of French society. I mean, he personifies the upper crust of French society.
4: And uh, the secretary uh, called me uh, five minutes later, and he said, uh, the minister wants to speak with Skype with you because it's very private. Uh, He wants to speak with Skype.
0: Skype, meaning video. Here in his tasting room, years later, Lignac described the scene. He'd sat down in front of his desktop monitor and waited for the call to connect. When it did, there was the minister sitting at a desk.
4: I see a desk with the flag of France, the flag of Europe, and uh, the ministre of Le Drillon.
0: The desk was flanked by French and European flags, Lignac said. He can't recall any other details about the scene. He was focused on whatever the defense minister was about to tell him. But in the Tiger dossier, there's a now-famous screenshot taken by a businessman in Niger who received an identical Skype call. In the image, Le Drian's desk is strewn with stacks of papers. There's a small wooden box of the size that might hold pens or cigars. On one corner sits a giant antique rotary telephone. And the man sitting at the desk, it was Jean-Livre Le Drian, in the flesh. The same patterned baldness on top with graying hair just along the sides. The same wrinkles on his forehead the same shaped glasses the minister liked to perch on the end of his nose.
4: I met only one time uh, Mr. Uh, Le mm. I met him only one time before. But I know his face, okay? Uh, and when I look at uh, Skype,
0: for me, it's him. For me, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> They'd met once at a military event. Wignac had seen Le Drillon on TV, too, of course. He knew him by sight. And this was him.
4: And the ministre said to me, "Gyptus Lieniac, I know that uh, je peux compter sur vous." I don't know the word in English.
0: That's what he said to you. I can count on you.
4: Yeah, yeah. Because I know that you are uh, officier of
0: gendarmerie. There it was—the stray personal fact that suppresses any doubt the call is real. Like so many marks before him, Lignac took the bait. Le Drian told him there'd been an international incident, a hostage situation. At this time, there is person who are uh, kidnapped, mm-hmm. kidnap, And the France
4: uh, don't give money, never. But you know that the France give money.
0: So France had a policy of not paying ransom money, except when, wink, wink, they did. The amounts the government needed began at 400,000 euros minimum, or around half a million dollars. This is when Lignac objected but not to the facts of the situation. His immediate reaction, when told the French state needed his money to help save someone, was to say yes. The only problem was the amount.
4: I said, sorry, but uh, I have no 300,000 euros on my account. (laughs) But he said, if you ask your bank, I think that uh, there is no problem. And uh, I said, no, 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 uh, not this... uh, Perhaps uh, fifty thousand, but not three hundred (laughs) thousand.
0: If he had asked you uh, ten thousand or twenty thousand, do you think you might have said okay? Uh, I yes. Perhaps
4: if he asked me about thirty or fifty thousand,
0: perhaps I said yes. He thought maybe the minister assumed, because of his family name, that he had that kind of money lying around. He assured Le that he didn't, but the minister insisted. Lignac should try to get the money on credit. But he said, if you ask your bank, I think that uh, there is no problem. Just at this moment, the Skype call cut out. And while he waited to reconnect, Lignac had time to take a breath, to think about what he'd heard, and also what he'd seen. There was something strange about Le face. Talk to anyone who knows the story of the Foladrian affair, and they'll bring up the one detail they'll never forget. The mask. Un masque en silicone. The silicone
3: mask like this one. Un masque en silicone. They put masks on. Oh.
0: The mask brought the whole thing to life. A kind of anatomical manifestation of the scam's pure, unfiltered audacity. Impersonating a government minister, that was one thing. But trotting out someone to play the minister on live video... That was another level. The first victim to see the mask was a legendary French entrepreneur named Pierre Bellon, the founder of the $22 billion food services company Sedexo. If you've eaten on a college campus or at a sports stadium in the past couple decades, you've been a customer of Sedexo, whether you realize it or not. The Tiger dossier notes that when Bellon connected to the Skype call, he saw, quote, "...a very poor quality image appearing to show Mr. LeDruyant." The police speculated that Bellon was looking at a looped video to make it seem like there was a live person in front of him. The crazy thing was, Bellon actually knew Johnny yves personally, and he was still convinced. He ordered a $3 million transfer and was only saved by a suspicious assistant who refused to put it through. It was another call to Bruno Payard, the head of Champagne Bruno Payard, that finally made the police realize what was happening. Payard contacted the authorities immediately after the initial call, Investigators raced to his vineyard and managed to record the ensuing Skype video. That was when it became clear to the police, this isn't some edited video of the real Le Drian. They're pretending to be him. They're doing it live. That didn't necessarily mean the scammers were using a mask. They could have had a Le look lookalike. But if you examine the video closely, then you saw it. Something loose about Le Drian's face. An uncanny valley-type quality of seeming human, but not quite like a mask. One of the things I could never make sense of in the Tiger dossier was how little effort French investigators made to figure out where the mask came from. There are no records of subpoenas sent to mask companies, no inquiries made into who could have created it. It seems like if you knew these guys were using a mask, you'd try to figure out where they got it. In fairness, there wasn't much to go on. The only small thread was a series of WhatsApp messages they later obtained. They were between a suspect in the scam and a man identified as Giovanni, discussing the logistics of obtaining a new mask. Giovanni had an Italian phone number. We tried the number. It was already abandoned. We then tried a bunch of the best mask makers we could find to suss out at least what it would have taken to create it. A lot of them didn't want to go on the record. We looked around in Italy, where I found a special effects master named Danilo Carignola, who was happy to talk. When I called up Carignola, he told me straight away that they didn't make the Ludrion mask. No chance, because
1: personally, I know each of our customers, and I never did these kind of characters.
0: But he was game to look at images of it and talk about how it might have been made. First thing was, to make a realistic mask, the material had to be either hardened latex or silicone. But to fool someone live with movement, only silicone would do.
1: they want to make something real, the material must use more elastic. So, if you have to make a video and move your face, the most suggested is the silicone.
0: You start with photos of a face and use the pictures to create a mold, which you then cover in silicone and work on manually, sculpting it with tiny tools to reproduce each pore and wrinkle. The process can take months. Once you've done that, then you have to fit the mask specifically to the wearer. If you don't do that, the proportions look off, or the face won't move naturally. It didn't look like they'd bothered with that step, Carignola said. He was shocked anyone would fall for it.
1: They look very unreal. Yeah. I don't know him, but the head proportion is too big, and the eyes are too deep.
0: The targets must have been primed to believe what they were about to see, he said. That, and the fact that it was over Skype, must have made the difference.
1: The video quality is very low, yeah. so it helps to don't see many details. It's another trick that they use.
0: We also talked to a highly successful mass maker in the U.S. who had a different view. He wouldn't let us record him. He said he didn't want to publicly associate his industry with criminality. But on background, he said this scammers had done a decent job with Le Drian. They'd gotten the baldness right and matched his skin tone. He said it looked like the mask might be a modified version of one created by a now-defunct Los Angeles company called SPFX.
3: His name is Rusty Slusser. Rusty makes highly detailed, high-end masks. He uses medical-grade silicone
0: that molds to... Strangely enough, I'd actually come across these particular masks before. A few years ago, I'd reported on a drug cartel whose enforcers had bought several SPFX masks over the Internet. They planned to use them to throw off police during the assassination of a DEA agent but they were caught before they could pull it off. In the LaDrian case, the challenge for the scammers was much harder. Not to disguise themselves, but to look like this specific, quite famous person. The mask maker told us that his best guess was that the mask was an SPFX off-the-shelf product called, literally, Old Man. That it had maybe been adapted by a professional to look more like LaDrian. He guessed the whole thing could have cost up to tens of thousands. Not a bad investment on a potential multi-million dollar return, but that was the funny thing about the LaDrian mask. It would play a crucial role in the investigation and in some ways become a kind of talisman for the scam itself. But in the end, as far as the investigators in the Tiger dossier could determine, it wasn't what the scammers used to get most of their money. What Danilo Caragnola couldn't get was why did they keep going?
1: Anyway, uh, he was very smart and I don't know if he got so much money. I don't know why he he tried again. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. It's a really good question. If I got 50, 60 millions, I can stop and go to enjoy my life (laughs) to make another mess. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Back in the tasting room at Chateau Godet, Guy Petrus-Lignac had reached the turn in his story the moment he narrowly avoided handing over hundreds of thousands of euros to the fake Le Drian. Right before the Skype call cut out, a friend of Lignac's arrived at the Chateau and caught the tail end of the conversation from off camera. When it disconnected, he and Lignac exchanged looks. His friend was certain it was a scam. Do you remember your discussion with your friend, what you talked about and why you decided it was a trap?
4: Yes, we look at the position of the desk of Mr. Le Drillon, the distance between Le Drian and the camera, and so on and so on, and it was a little bit dark, a little bit dark.
0: A little too far away from the camera, a little too dim. And the way the minister told him to call his bank, just a little too pushy. A few minutes later, when Lignac finally reconnected with the minister by phone, he said as much. He no longer believed Le Drian. It seemed like an arnac, he said. A scam. As soon as he said the word, arnak, the minister went berserk. His face
4: changed. And he said, you don't know me, but if you said that uh, it's an uh, arnac, uh, I send you the fisk, you know, about uh,
0: when you have to pay uh, tax. Ah, He was angry? Was he angry?
4: Uh, Yes, he was angry. He was very angry. Yes, at this time, very, very angry.
0: After telling Lignac that he would order an investigation of his finances through the tax office, the fake minister hung up. Lignac was certain now. No real minister would act this way in response to the accusation. Lignac reported the call to the gendarmerie. He handed over the Skype handle he'd been given, along with the phone numbers they'd used. When I asked
4: his secretary about uh, the number of Skype, and after I said to the gendarmerie in France, I have the number of Skype of this man. Uh Aha. And after they said, okay, he's from Israel.
0: Once again, the numbers trace back to the same place. In our conversations with Lignac, which, yes, continued over a glass of Chateau Gadet, he was philosophical about how close he'd come to accepting the ruse, how he actually had accepted it, right up to the moment his friend intervened. Uh, puis, vous êtes pris dans le tourbillon de la vie? You get caught up in the whirlwind of life, he said, and then suddenly you're presented with an irresistible story when you don't expect it. It's only when you wake up from the story that you ask yourself, how could you have believed it, even for a moment? Does it feel like a f- Funny story for you, because you didn't give any money, or is there something in it that is disturbing also
4: ah, it's not a funny story it's not a funny story because a lot of person yeah, perhaps if he ask me about thirty uh, thousand perhaps I give yeah. It's very easy to make in the basket to to go to go to go to, yes. okay. to go to go to go to go to go to go to the trap.
1: go
0: to
1: go to
0: go to go to go to Wealthy people. Often the kind of people that had a certain confidence in their own acumen, who trusted their instincts because the world told them that those instincts are what had put them on top. And that's the thing about a great con. The trait that it exploits is not necessarily gullibility. What it's really preying on is self-deception. Fooling yourself into believing you're the kind of person special enough to receive this call, to be needed so desperately. The thing is, that story you're telling yourself... It could also be the story you tell the world. And after combing through thousands of pages of the Tiger dossier, it occurred to us that maybe we'd been asking the wrong question. We'd been trying to figure out who was running a con. The better question might be, who was it? Do you remember when you first heard that this scam had taken place and involved the Aga Khan?
4: Oh yes. Uh, yes, uh, yes, I remember reading it in the newspaper and I was so happy that uh, somebody scammed this scamster himself
0: That's next time on Persona Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Parrott, with additional help on this episode from Emmanuel Hapsis. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting by David Iverson. Translation by Lila Badranath, Chloe Deichu, and Jen Rue. Fact-checking by Adeline Sear and Danya Suleiman. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson De Rocher and Fair Use Counsel provided by Katie Ali Mohammedi Crown at Donaldson Caliph. Special thanks to Clara Shari. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen, and our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Ren. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louis, and Aaron O'Flaherty.